All right, we're going to spend some time studying the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're in the middle section, chapters 5 through 10, which we've called the messed up church. And in this series, we've been looking back at the church in Corinth, uh, which I told you last week, the technical theological term is dumpster fire or hot mess. They just had all kinds of issues. But we've wanted to make sure that as we're looking at them, we're learning the same lessons because we are also messed up. We're all sinners. We've all fallen away from God. We've all gone our own way, done our own thing. There's the religious way of doing that. Religious rebellion looks like pretending that we've got our stuff together. And the non-religious rebellion is like, I'm just going to do my own thing. I don't even believe in this whole sin category, right? And it looks very different socially in our world. Uh, We tend to think of one of those groups as the real sinners, but we're all sinners. We're all messed up. We all need Jesus. We all have to come back to him to reset our direction. And so that's what we've seen again and again in 1 Corinthians 5 through 10, the messed up church. We're messed up as well, and we need Jesus. Last week, we kind of did an intermission. We went back to chapter one and and reviewed the gospel foundation. This week, we're going to enter into chapter nine, and we're calling it Invest in the Gospel invest in the gospel. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. Verses 1 through 18. We study the scriptures here every week because we believe that it speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. We come hungry. I hope that you come as well, interested in what God has to say to us, uh, to learn from his word. Um, I was talking about the sermon with my wife last week, about Thursday, we were taking an evening stroll around the block, and she was like, okay, how's it going? You know, I was a little behind last week, just some other things that were going on, some busyness that week, pre, uh, taught at a conference. And I was like, I think, I think I've settled the big idea, invest in the gospel. I can kind of see verses 1 through 18 are all headed in the same direction, but it's a tricky text. It's almost like two different sermons in verses 1 through 18. There's like the first half, which is, it's good to pay preachers. And then there's the second half, which is, it's good to not pay preachers. And without missing a beat, she was like, I really think you should preach the first sermon. (laughs) It's good to pay preachers. Now, we joke because you guys pay me. For those of you that are new to the church, you may not know this, I am on full-time salary at this church. Thank you very much. I want to thank you for your generous gifts. And so I want to make sure as you're hearing this sermon, you're not hearing some kind of appeal or like arm twisting that you would pay me more or pay me better or whatever. We want to try to lay out general principles. I want to say I'm thankful. I'm, I'm paid generously. I'm fed generously. You can't always tell that. But uh, yeah, I also got a, a gift of barbecue for uh, Pastor's Appreciation Month. That was fantastic. Um, but I appreciate your generosity. But there are really two points here. And Paul's doing this thing that he's done a lot in 1 Corinthians, right? So here's the deal. Sometimes it's a black and white issue of right and wrong. And Paul's like, stop doing that. It's wrong, right? We've seen that with sexual immorality and some of these other issues. But then there are some issues where Paul says, here is how you decide what to do in any given situation. You think about how are you gonna push the gospel forward? There are gray issues, Those of you that grew up from fundamentalist backgrounds, I'm sorry, there are some gray issues, right? Some things are black and white. Some things are clear. Obey the Ten Commandments, right? But there are some gray issues where Paul's like, well, yeah, it's okay. Chapter eight, Lucas preached that a couple weeks ago. It's okay to eat meat offered to idols, but if that's leading someone to sin and to to go back to idol worship, then don't do it, right? He's like, he even says this. This is the most extreme statement I think Paul has ever made in the New Testament. He says, I would stop eating barbecue altogether 
if it would keep people from knowing Jesus, right? Paul's willing to just lay that out there, right? He's saying the determining factor is, are people gonna see Jesus or not? And that's how we decide kind of case by case on these gray issues. So he's coming back to that in this text this week. He's gonna echo a lot of language across references in 1 Timothy 5, 17, where it talks about paying preachers and paying people to preach the gospel. He's gonna say, that's a good thing. The other thing I wanna say, as we kind of think about preachers and the role that they have in the church, this is the uh, October is Pastor Appreciation Month. I've gotten a lot of thank yous and appreciations and, and I just wanna thank you for that. And then I, in turn, wanna thank my pastors, right? I have pastors. We have seven lay pastors. We have elders at our church. I wanna thank the elders that pastor me, that encourage me in my faith. I wanna thank the assistant pastors at this church that pastor and encourage me. I wanna thank the other ministry directors that pastor, pray for me, encourage me. I'm, I'm friends with other pastors around the nation and around the area as well that encourage and pray for me. I wanna thank you, the congregation. Uh, when you stop and, and pray for me, when you encourage me, you are pastoring me, right? Like I might have the official office title of pastor, but as we shepherd others, we're investing in the gospel. So I, wanna, I want you to get that bigger vision that, yeah, there are some people that might get paid to preach the gospel. They might full-time, so to speak, preach the gospel. And then there are others that maybe have another job that are going in another direction vocationally, but all of us together are receiving the grace of Jesus and saying, thank you, Jesus, for giving your life to me. And then we're trying to pass that on to other people. So I wanna thank you for being a part of that here at Grace Bible Church. You do that so well. So two big ideas in this text. Number one, it's good to pay preachers. Number two, it's also good to preach for free. And he's gonna say, pray about it. You're gonna have different opportunities depending on your gifts, your background, the doors that God opens, the door that God's closing for you. And Paul's really gonna genuinely give us these two choices. So we'll read 1 Corinthians 9 verses one through 18. Starting in verse one. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So just to pause there for a second, he's reinforcing, you know I'm an apostle because I preach the gospel to you. Picking up in verse three, he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law of Moses say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap things from you, material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to, to secure any such provision. 
For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now, again, this is confusing because we kind of wish Paul would just say, do this every time, all the time, right? It's always right to do this. And he's like, here's the right thing. Pay your preachers. It's the right thing. He just lays it out. Bang, bang, bang. And then he's like, and I have the right to that. I should be paid. And he's like, but I'm not going to let you pay me. Don't pay me. Because that could be an obstacle to the gospel for some people. You're like, wait, 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 Paul, which is it, right? Is it right to pay preachers or is it wrong to pay preachers? Should we always pay every preacher? Should we pay every Christian every time you speak the word of God to a friend? Like, what, what are we supposed to do? And Paul's like, saying, no, that it's good to pay some preachers to devote their effort, their energy to doing this. And then it's also good to preach the gospel for, for, for free. Um, here's a way to think about this. I have this glorious privilege of devoting all my time to studying the word of God, to training other leaders, to encouraging people in the Lord, to encouraging missionaries, to preaching the gospel publicly, to preaching the gospel here locally at the church and other places. Um, but then you have this incredible opportunity if you're not on staff at a church, if you're not paid to preach the gospel, you have this awesome opportunity to preach the gospel in places that I can never reach to people that wouldn't listen to me because I'm paid to say it, right? But for you, you get your living some other way. You have a credibility that I don't have with certain people to proclaim the gospel. We're all in this together. And so we together represent the two different things that Paul is saying here. Some people are paid to preach the gospel. Other people are not. Um, Some of you are paid to share the word. Some of you are not, right? And so Paul is saying both of these are valid and, and beautiful and good and right things. And depending on circumstances, depending on your opportunities, you're gonna fall in one of these categories or the other. In my own personal life, when I first started walking with Jesus, I felt a growing burden and passion to share the grace that Jesus had given to me with other people. I was just overwhelmed that Jesus had really died for me. It became so crystal clear to me at 17 years of age. I said, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you anywhere. No matter what that means, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk with you. And I began getting excited about sharing it with friends, my peers. I began leading a Bible study with eighth grade boys. I just was involved in the life of the church doing other things like that. Um, but I was taught in the church that I was raised in, in Temple, Texas, not too far from here, kind of a dangerous place, be careful, but it's, it's not too far away. I was taught in Temple, Texas at this church, what Paul says in the second half, that there's great credibility and a removing of obstacles when people are willing to preach the good news of Jesus without that being their primary vocation. And so I was working in college and in young adulthood to set up a different vocation so that I could be a Sunday school teacher, lead my friends to Christ, talk to people about Jesus, but not work for the church. I had been taught that that strategically was the best way to go. Um, personally, in my own life, I was working for an insurance company. I thought this would be a great way to go. I could own my own business. I'd have some flexibility with my hours so that I could be devoted to ministry, but still have a way to feed my family, um, to make a living, and yet not work for the church. And that was what I was working on. I did kind of clerking and administration, even some telemarketing. And so I was working through this in college, and I was getting trained for insurance. I went to one of these week-long classes where you get trained to pass your license exam, 
Uh, I went to the University of Houston to, to take the exam to get my license to become a real insurance agent so I could start working towards having my own insurance agency. Uh, when I showed up at the University of Houston, there was nobody there. I was there to take the exam, and the building was locked. It's like, well, this is weird, because they gave me directions to downtown Houston, to this building. They gave me directions to the right floor that I needed to go at, but there was nobody there. So I called up the place that was arranging the test, and they said, oh, we've got you booked to take your exam up in Fort Worth. And if you don't know, if you're new to Texas, Houston is pretty far from Fort Worth. (laughs) So at that point, 15 minutes before it was time for the exam to start, there was no way I could take my exam. Not only that, but they weren't going to offer the exam for another three months because this company, this was the last day they were administering the exam. They were switching the contract over. A new company was going to start administering the exam. It's like, okay, well, that's really set things back. And I, you know, and I just spent money out of my own pocket to go to this training class that prepared you for this exam. You know, probably the exam would change and I'd probably have to restudy and all that. About two weeks later, and of course, there are a lot of other circumstances I've been praying through and working through at the time as well. Sermons the pastor was preaching at my church down at Texas A&M at the time. And I was working this through and a friend called me from a church and said, hey, I've, I've got a position. It's kind of a poverty level, full-time ministry position. I'd like to hire you as my youth ministry assistant. I was like, well, God seems to be closing all these other doors. I, I really want to be involved in ministry. So I, I began doing full-time ministry for a church. Really, God led me circumstantially in, into that. And then through other circumstances, God kind of affirmed that and encouraged me to, to keep going with it. I share that example for you to say, and I, I wasn't sure which way to go either. If you're wrestling with that yourself, I'd love to talk to you about it. I'd love to pray it through with you. Whenever people come to me and tell me, man, I really feel called to full-time ministry, I always tell them the best way to prepare for full-time ministry is to just do ministry in whatever, whatever vocation you're already in. Just be involved in the life of the church. Serve, grow, continue to grow in your ability to share Jesus with other people. Because again, you're going to have opportunities and credibility to share Jesus with people and in places that I'll, I will never reach. So I just want to encourage you that God gives us all different callings and he'll guide us. He'll prepare us circumstantially through the gifts he's given you, through the community he's placed you in to encourage and to prepare you and to lead you to what's right for you. Let me, let me pray for us and ask God to help us learn from his text this morning. God, we thank you that you love us and you've called us to yourself in Jesus. And that's, that's the main point, the, the grace that you've given us in the good news. So God, help us to receive that grace. And then show us ways we can invest in the gospel, whether that be financially supporting the, the preaching and the proclamation of the word through ministers that you've called, Lord, whether it be at a local church or missionaries overseas, or Lord, whether you're calling us to not take a paycheck Um, but to share Christ freely, working for a living with whatever job you've called us to. God, help us to see how you've prepared us, where you are sending us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is a big parallel to chapter eight. So I just wanna, before we move on into chapter nine, just wanna remind you, go back to chapter eight. It's been a couple of weeks since Lucas taught it. And in chapter eight, Lucas was saying, hey, there are people that have, knowledge of what's right and wrong and people that are stronger than the weaker Christians. And they want to use their authority and their strength and their knowledge to uh, get away with doing everything that they can to just take advantage of their own rights. Paul says, actually, Christians should lay down our rights, should lay down our blessings and our privileges so that others can know Jesus. 
And so that paradigm from chapter eight about meat offered to idols and not wanting to trip people up, that's gonna carry through to everything he's gonna say about preachers. He's gonna say, see, I'm a preacher and I'm laying down my rights to take pay from you. I'm giving that up so that there's less of a stumbling block so more people can hear about Jesus, okay? And so we've got the two main points. Point number one is it's good to pay preachers. And point number two is it's good to preach for free. Seemingly contradictory points, but both of them prove the big idea of investing in the gospel. We are to invest in the good news. What is the good news? Before we move on, we we rehearsed it last week. The good news is that Jesus came for us, even though we were sinners and we rebelled against God. None of us deserve to be with God in heaven. All of us have rebelled, whether we're religious or non-religious, whether we've rebelled openly or secretly, we've all turned from God. And so the good news is the story that Jesus took our sin upon his own shoulders, that God came after us in love and that nothing we could do could earn our spot at his table, but he invites us and he adopts us into his family through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus died as our substitute and then Jesus rose from the grave and that guarantees that he really is Lord of the universe, that he really has conquered sin and death and we really are adopted as his children. So that's the good news. How are we gonna spread that good news? Paul says, well, there's a real standard way to do that. You pay some preachers. And then Paul's gonna say, but I'm not gonna get paid by you because I wanna open new doors that might be closed to me if I was paid by you. So point number one, it's good to pay preachers. Paul starts off, really, it sounds harsh when we first read this, but again, it's in context of chapter eight. Chapter eight, he was challenging the strong people to lay down their rights. So he starts off hard with, I've got a lot of rights. I've got a lot of authority. Verse one of chapter nine, am I not free he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Fundamentally, there are two definitions of apostle. There's the kind of big A apostle, and that means the New Testament guys that wrote the Bible, right? Paul qualifies on that front. Have I not seen the Lord? Right there are the witnesses to the Lord. We say big A, like capital A apostle, right? So there's this kind of authoritative apostleship. And then there's what we would sometimes say lowercase a apostle. That's somebody functioning in an apostolic way. Um, And it'll help you to understand this if I give you the Latin translation of apostle. The Latin translation of apostle is missionary. That's the Latin word for apostle. means a sent one, right? And so Paul is really speaking on both levels. He's saying, yeah, I'm an authoritative apostle. I'm writing the Bible here. I've seen the Lord, you know, I've seen the resurrected Lord. I'm one of the official apostles. There's this authoritative kind of prophetic authority that we believe is no longer around today. We've got the the finished work of the Bible here. But then there's the lower A apostle, the missionary, the sent one, the preacher, the one who shares the good news and people hear it and trust in Jesus. And he's like, aren't I also qualified at that level? Because I'm the one that preached the gospel to you. The reason that you guys believe in Jesus is because I came and preached to you. So he's establishing his authority. He's like, I'm your leader. I have these rights. Again, remember context. In chapter eight, he just told them, the leaders in Corinth, to lay down their rights for the people they're leading. So in verse three, he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So he's saying the other apostle, Cephas is uh, the other name for Peter. It's a Greek name for Peter. He's saying, don't these other guys, they have wives, they're feeding their families, they're bringing them along on their ministry trips. He's, he's saying it's a standard right. We all know the other apostles get paid. Uh, they're supported as they do ministry. Verse six, 
Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So basically, it appears that Barnabas and Paul are participating in this practice of not taking a paycheck and doing ministry for free. Now, to be clear, there are later times when Paul says, hey, church in Rome, give me money to equip me to go to Spain. So it's not that Paul never ever took money from anyone for any ministry, but in Corinth specifically in other places, he said, I'm not gonna take a paycheck. I'm gonna work with my own hands. He was a leather worker. He made tents and shelters out of leather. Uh, So he worked with his own hands. He had a a side vocation. Sometimes we call that bivocational ministry. He made money this way to, to buy food and drink so that he could then do ministry and preach the gospel to these guys over here. And so he's saying, this is what I do. Is it just me and Barnabas? What, what about these other people? They, they get paid. So he's, he's clarifying the standard. The standard, the norm is, is paying preachers. He goes on to, to nail this down. He uses kind of secular examples in verse seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Raise your hand if you work for the army or you've ever worked for the army. Okay, about half the congregation. Raise your hand if you've worked for the army, you've ever worked for the army, or anybody in your family has ever worked for the army. Okay, that's like 70%. Okay. So most of you, now, if, if this is you, you probably wouldn't tell me, right? You're like a spy or something. But most of you don't do army stuff on your own dime, right? Like you get paid by the army to do army stuff. He's saying a soldier gets, gets paid to do his soldiering. He goes on. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, right? If you're a farmer or if you're a vineyard worker, you you enjoy the fruit of the business that you're involved in. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? That one really confused me at the nine o'clock service, but we have a shepherd here. He's like, no, you can actually milk sheep too. Like that happens. Some special sheep, you make Parmesan cheese or something. Yeah, okay. There's something he was clarifying for me. Okay, so anyway, any kind of animal husbandry. We'll just go general, right? Farming, ranching, soldiering, teaching, right? All these vocations in the normal world, you get paid to do your thing. That's just normal. So Paul's just given this secular, like, yeah, it's normal that we would pay people to do their thing. That's perfectly fine. Do I say these things on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? He's like, so I just gave you secular examples. We all see this in the real world. Oh yeah, the law of Moses says the same thing. It says in verse nine, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Like, wait, Paul, now you're talking about oxen. I love this illustration. Um, It's used of preachers being like oxen treading out the grain, right? If y'all don't know, I love the, the, you know, just kind of thinking of like treading. Here, I got to show you the picture because it doesn't make sense apart from the picture. There's a picture. The the oxen kind of, they tread the grain. And this is a way of threshing grain. So, you know, in the ancient world, they would take pitchforks and they'd throw the grain up in the air and let the wind separate it and they'd beat it with forks. Sometimes they'd have giant wheels that would crush it, you know, and the oxen would pull the giant stone wheel. Sometimes the oxen just tromp through the grain. There's different ways of doing this, but it would have been a common agrarian image that they would have been familiar with. So you've got the oxen kind of working through the grain, separating it, breaking it up with his feet, but then he's also gonna eat some of it, right? And the law actually says it's wrong to muzzle the oxen while he's treading the grain. It's like, be nice to your beast. Let him eat some of the food while he's working, right? And sometimes it's not your beast. Sometimes you would rent the beast to do this work for you and then send the beast back to the guy you rented it from hungry, right? It's like sending the tractor empty with no gas in it. He's saying in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy to be kind to your beast. 
And Paul is saying here as he quotes this, it's not just about beasts. When you read Deuteronomy 24, it's about general generosity and kindness beyond just our animals. So the Bible draws this connection. Jesus talks about this in the gospels. It's called the argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says it this way, like if, if God cares about the little birds, don't you think he cares for you? You know that one? If God cares for the little sparrows, little birds, if he takes care of the animals, doesn't he care for you? And then Proverbs, that's worked through with this ethic of the righteous man cares for his beast. Deuteronomy 24, don't, don't muzzle the ox, like, like let him eat. And so Paul is saying this is a general issue that works through the ethic of the entire Old Testament. And we have to keep saying this as we've been working through 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians has brought up the issue of sexual immorality in several places. There is a unified ethic between the Old and New Testament. And because of our cultural distance and because we're quote unquote smart modern people, we often read the Old Testament and we're horrified. Now I think sometimes it's describing things that aren't necessarily good, right? Sometimes things happen in the Old Testament that were just straight up bad, right? And just because they happened doesn't mean it was right. But there is a consistent moral ethic in the Old Testament that is the same in the New Testament. So the ceremonies have changed. There's a different priesthood system, right? We don't have the same temple worship and sacrifice anymore. Those things have changed. And the ceremonial stuff of like the clothing that they would wear and the symbols that they would use and the type of uh, food that they would eat, right? Those symbols have changed now in Christ, but the morality is the same. And Paul is doing this kind of exegesis where he points back to a law that's kind of like a very specific farming law. I, I don't have any oxen, right? But it's showing me something about the beauty of the morality of God, his care for the creatures and his care for us. So that's kind of a simultaneously talking about this specific issue of paying preachers. He's also just talking about a bigger issue of like the people that work for you. Do you pay them well? Do you, do you care for them? Your animals, are you kind to your animals, right? Like there's this whole like un, uh, cascading ethic that, that flows out of this. And, and we're called to be those kinds of generous, kind, caregiving people. He says, don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, but is it really for oxen that God is concerned? Verse 10, does he not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake, he says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So he's saying, he's just laying down the standard. It's good to pay preachers. It's the right thing to do. And I would add to that, it's also good to pay well anybody that works for you, right? It's good to take care of your animals. Again, this, this cascading ethic that we see back in Deuteronomy 24. Are you being generous? Are you caring for those that God has put in your network that are working for you, that are serving you? And again, you might think, maybe I'm not well cared for. I'm skinny. That's just the way God made me. Y'all feed me well. You care for me well. And I thank you for that. I love, I love the image of the ox. And like, I envision myself like clawing through the word of God, you know, and I get to eat some while, I, while I'm moving along the way. Um, I appreciate y'all's care for us. So applicationally here, there's an application. Number one, some of you may be called to be preachers that preach full-time, that, that work for a church or a mission agency. If you're called to work for a mission agency, there's, there's nothing wrong in inviting people to give to that mission. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That's a good and beautiful thing. So for some of you, God may be stirring in your heart this desire 
to go do ministry. And that might be a barrier. You're like, I could never ask for money. You ask for money if you're a, a baker or a butcher or a candlestick maker, right? Like, it's okay. We all ask for money. Sometimes we're just removed from it because we work for a corporation. So we didn't really ask. No, you asked when you went and interviewed for that job, right? You were asking them for money. And so we all ask for money. And Paul's saying it's a right and good thing to, to get paid to share the word of God. Now he's going to say in the next section, but I don't do it, right? And he's going to give us reasons why he does not. But he's laying this foundation. No, it's a good, it's a standard, it's a normal thing. So some of you might feel called to full-time ministry. I'd love to talk to you about that and what that looks like. I think the place to start is by doing unpaid ministry and to build experience before you get into full-time paid ministry. But I want to encourage you in that. That's, God has really genuinely called some people to that, and it's a good and, and right thing. The other application is for, for those of us that are not in full-time ministry is financially supporting those that are. And so there's a lot of different ways to talk about this. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul's talking more about giving the, to the poor there than giving towards ministry, but he mixes up some language about giving to future ministry as well in 2 Corinthians. So parallel, we're in 1 Corinthians right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 talks about giving as well. And he talks about two things that are really important. That giving would be planned ahead. He uses the phrase, be ready to give. He also talks about giving cheerfully. Are you giving cheerfully? And so we need to make sure we've got really healthy distance between how we understand financial giving in a church to work and what a lot of churches teach, which is called the health and wealth or prosperity gospel. Have you ever heard those terms, health and wealth or prosperity gospel? So a lot of churches make giving their weekly sermon. And it goes something like this. Now, it's not this simple. Some, you know, everybody's somewhere on the spectrum. But a lot of churches are at this extreme where they're like, if you give enough money, God will be forced to bless you. It's like a mechanical relationship. You put in quarters to God, and then he has to spit out of his heavenly vending machine blessings upon you. If you give enough money to the rich preacher, then maybe you'll become rich as well, right? And there are these kind of weird promises of blessing that are mechanical we got to say the Bible, it's confusing because the Bible definitely teaches there is blessing in giving. So these preachers are taking that general blessing of there are blessings for you if you're a generous giving person. And then they make it into a mechanical kind of false substitute gospel that your salvation comes through giving. And that's not how the Bible teaches it at all. The Bible says your salvation comes from Jesus. We're all lost without Jesus And Jesus came for us and he gave himself for us. And then because we're saved and we're adopted and we're a part of his family, everything changes. And we now hold our stuff more loosely. We feel more free with giving our time, our our talents, our our money, whatever it might be, our interests, our emotional margin. We, We feel more free to give ourselves away to other people for the sake of Jesus, investing in the gospel. So we just wanna be really clear about that. We encourage you to give if you believe Jesus is given to you. If you're here just trying to learn more about who Jesus is, don't give anything, right? Like there's no, there's no like fee for services here. We, we preach for free. People that come to this church that believe in what we're doing, that give, give so that I can preach the gospel for free to those of you that aren't sure yet. We're excited to do that. We're happy to do that. Same thing with our missionaries overseas. We set aside as a church 10% of the general income that comes in to push it back out to other ministries, to some local partner ministries, to some overseas ministries, some hard to reach, 
you know, far off unreached people groups across the world. We call it global outreach. And so we try to kind of practice this 10%. It's sometimes called the tithe as an organization, kind of tithing out 10th, 10th percent, 10% out to other ministries. Now, I just want to clarify some things too. For some of you that are kind of just kind of new to this, right? Like you may not be giving yet. You want to start giving. Um, 10% is a great number to shoot for. But for some of you, you're like, wow, going from zero to 10%, it's going to like break my neck, right? It's like jumping on a treadmill going full speed. Um, I just want to clarify a couple of things. Number one, the New Testament nowhere establishes that you must give 10%. And I'm, I'm disappointing a lot of you by saying that. That's actually what the New Testament says. Um, for those of you that are really committed to giving 10%, I want to challenge you that the Old Testament actually has people giving about 23%. So while well, I'm giving a little freedom to the new givers, those of you that feel really bound to the tithe, let's bring it up to 23%, okay? So I'm kind of speaking in jest here. Again, 2 Corinthians 9, the other passage in the second letter, he says, really the issue is planning, praying, and feeling generous and cheerful about it. That's the issue. What has God given to you? How can you give to fuel more ministry? Our church right now is at about at 86% of what we planned to uh, receive this year, right? Kind of planned giving. Can you ever really plan what people are gonna give in in a year? It's hard to plan, especially with all the pandemic and everything else going on but we're a little bit below is what that means. We're about 86% of what we expected people to be giving right now. So we wanna encourage you, if you're not giving already, it could help us to share the gospel with more people if you wanna give. If you don't, we're gonna burn through some of our savings, right? Like it's all right, we trust the Lord with how this is all gonna go, but we do wanna invite you into the process and tell you we really think it's worthwhile to join with us in what we're doing, paying financially to share the gospel with more people. So good place to start if you've never given before, but you're convinced that Jesus has given to you. Best place to start is getting on a budget, right? Before you set a percent, get on a budget. We're gonna, I think we're gonna do a class in January uh, on budgeting and kind of what the Bible has to say about that to help you with that. I've benefited from, from mentors and leaders who have helped me. I'm not very administrative. I'm not very organized. So I've had people help us to get on a better budget over the years multiple times, right? Um, you know, I'm an empty nester now. I've got kids in college. So every few years, your, your budget gets more complicated, right? So I've had people help us with that over the years and help us uh, get on a better budget. That's really the place to start, getting on a healthy budget so that you can plan ahead. A second Corinthians 9 says, be prepared to give financially, to invest in the gospel, to push out preaching of the word to other places. And then I would say, just, just start with something, right? Start with 2%, start with 3% and move forward. Again, there's no number that says, oh, you're giving this amount, you are now righteous before God. There is no magic number. You're righteous before God because Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. That's what unites you to God. And then you gotta go, okay, well, what has Jesus given to me? I'm gonna, I wanna give some things in return. And use your, your talents, your time, your money to invest in the gospel. It's good to pay preachers. Okay, uh, another cross-reference is Galatians 6.6. 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. It's a great cross-reference. It's just like standard. So not only giving to pay a church to do ministries or a missionary to do their ministry, but also just being an encourager. Like, do you have a Sunday school teacher that's been a great mentor? Have you written them a thank you note? Have you told them thank you for their ministry? Buy them a gift card? 
Tell them you're doing a great job. Encourage them in their ministry. Share the good things that you've been given with those who teach and those who lead. Again, I've, I've been led and encouraged by many of you. I thank you for your ministry to me. Now we're gonna transition to Paul saying, okay, I'm not taking this right. It's good and right to pay preachers, but don't pay me, right? And Paul's gonna use really strong language where he says, don't pay me, I don't want you to pay me because it's really important that I maintain this credibility as someone who preaches for free. So not only is it good to pay preachers, but it's also good to preach for free. So this is a right that Paul is saying, I've got this right, I'm an apostle, I preach the gospel to you, I've got the right, but I'm not gonna take the right. And he's modeling what it looks like to be like Jesus, who Philippians said, we, we studied Philippians a while back, Philippians says that Jesus had all rights as God himself, but left the perfection of heaven, gave up his privileges, gave up his right, entered into our terrible neighborhood, lived a broken, terrible, abused, hurt life, just like you and I have led, and gave himself for us. Paul is saying he's modeling this as well. Starting in verse 12, He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights. So you might be wondering, why did Paul divert again in those couple of verses to say, don't you know this is proved out in the temple service? Don't you know that Jesus said, the Lord said, it's right for people to make their living by the gospel? Like, why did he go back to it? Weren't we just in that section? Here's the deal. I think he's setting up the tension between the Jewish context and the Greek context of, of Corinth. So he's, he's kind of helping them understand, I've given up this right, but part of why I give up this right is because I'm preaching in Corinth. In Corinth, there were two things that happened a lot. Number one, they had traveling teachers that made a lot of money by, by getting paid to be a traveling teacher. In our world, we have click funnels and online courses. We have the same thing, right? We pay to get information. We pay, you know, I paid to try to pass my insurance license exam, right? We pay for these courses all the time. Paul's like, I just wanted to set up that I'm, this is not the normal kind of consumerism that people in Corinth were used to. I wanna separate myself from that culture. So like in the culture of the Israelites, they had this established system where it made more sense, right? They had checks and balances. They understood how it worked. And there were things that, that made it work better. In our own church, one of the checks and balances we have is I am governed by an elder board. We have unpaid preachers that set the salary of the paid preachers. So, right, we've got this unpaid elder board, unpaid preachers that are setting a salary for the paid preachers. I'm functionally the, the CEO of the operation day to day, but I answer to a board of elders who tell me yes, no, or slow down on daily decisions for the life of the church. So there are checks and balances in an established church. In the same way in the temple, there were checks and balances. People understood the system. They had the whole law written out and how it should work and how it shouldn't work. And they were used to it in their culture. He was breaking through to a new culture in Corinth. They didn't have all these rules. They didn't have standards. He's like, you know what? I just want to be real clear that I'm not preaching this gospel just to get paid for it. A second issue in Corinth that comes up even more strongly in 2 Corinthians is the patron-client relationship. It was very common for rich people to pay people to be on their staff 
or to pay people with favors or, or really what we would today call bribes, just things that wouldn't even be legal in our culture, but they were ethical in that culture and they were standard. But Paul was like, eh, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this, right? Because if you're paying me and you're a rich, powerful influencer in Corinth, then people are gonna think that I'm on your payroll, right? That I belong to you, that I owe you favors. So Paul was distancing himself from that. Again, in our context, one of the ways I do this, you know, nothing's perfect. We have a lot of different checks and balances, but I try to just not know what you give, right? Because I just, I want my heart to have a little distance between like, oh, this person, they give me a lot. I better really listen to what they say, right? I wanna try to maintain some distance so that I can preach free of that and not put obstacles in the way of the gospel. So we all set up different checks and balances. Paul was saying, I don't want this to look like the way it normally looks in the city of Corinth. He says in verse 15, I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now, this is hyperbole. This is exaggeration. I got mixed up in the first service and I wanted to say parabola. It's not parabola, it's hyperbole, okay? (laughs) This is hyperbole. This is an exaggeration, right? He's not really saying, if you pay me, I'm just gonna like kill myself, right? That's not really, he's just saying, this is a really, really important thing for me. I wanna maintain this distance so that I can preach the gospel with more credibility, with open doors. And then he goes on. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. So he just said, don't take this boast away from me that I don't get paid to preach the gospel. And then he's like, but you know what? Really, I don't get to boast at all. Why? Because Jesus appeared to him, knocked him on his butt and said, go preach the gospel. And he's like, so pretty much if I just do what Jesus said, I have no boast, right? (laughs) I'm just obeying my master. And so hopefully that helps put in context some of the back and forth that he's saying here. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship, right? He's like, this, this is what I have to do. What then is my reward that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So now Paul's making this passionate case for don't pay me. Don't pay me to preach the gospel. And so again, I wanna lay out to you, some of you are in that situation. And in your mind, you're like, oh yeah, I don't preach the gospel. Dave does that. No, you're also preachers of the gospel. You may not have an office. You may not have a position. You may not be an official missionary, but we're all called to represent Jesus. in whatever crack or corner or neighborhood of society that God has called us to So God wants to work through you faithfully and you're gonna have a credibility as a quote unquote regular person. Just to be clear, I am a regular person. I just want y'all to know that, okay? (laughs) But you you know what I mean. There's There's a credibility that you have as a faithful follower of Jesus that gets your paycheck from somewhere else. There's a credibility and open doors for the gospel that you have that I do not have. So we believe God works through this balance of, of some that are paid to preach the gospel and others that are not. Most of the people at our church are not paid to preach the gospel, right? But we're all doing it together. We're all sharing this good news together. So the first point was it's good to pay preachers. The second point is, you know what? It's good to preach for free as well. So he uses this word in verse 12, 
We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So I grabbed a a picture of someone tripping over a wire. Maybe this has happened to you at work, tripping over a wire. There's a a cross-reference of this. Again, chapter eight, where Lucas was a couple of weeks ago, the cross-reference is the word stumble. Uh, He uses the word in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13. If food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. It's like, I will, I'll give up barbecue forever. Again, this crazy stuff that Paul says. He would never eat meat again so that more people could hear the gospel. And he's using the word stumble. We've got the word obstacle. Both Greek words basically mean stuff you can trip over. Our word in chapter nine is for like digging a trench. So it's kind of an army or military word. You, you would dig a trench, right? To, to be a defensive protection, it's something you could stumble into. And then the the stumble word in chapter eight in the previous chapter is more like a, a block or a tripwire or something physical in the way. Either way, it's something that trips people up. It makes it harder for people to get to Jesus. He's gonna just kind of keep pushing and pushing and pushing on this again and again. I said this at the beginning, there are black and white issues of things that you should never do because you belong to Jesus. Obedience to his moral will. But then there are a lot of decisions every day that you face where you're like, I'm not sure if Jesus really cares. And we, we pray and we say, Jesus, what, what's the best way for me to love you through this choice I have? What's the best way for other people to see the good news of Jesus? So Paul's gonna continue with this next week in chapter nine. He's gonna talk about being all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. He's talking about laying down his rights. He's saying, tribally, I'm a Jew, but I've given up my tribal identity, to help others to see Jesus? How tightly are you holding on to your tribal identity, to your preferences? And are you willing to loosen your grip on those things and invest those preferences in the gospel? He's gonna come back to it in chapter 14. He's gonna say, you know, there's two different ways of doing a gathered worship service as Christians. One way is saying, we only care about us. But Paul says, you know what you should do? You should present your worship service in such a way that if an unbeliever or an outsider comes in, they clearly hear and see the good news of Jesus. The idea is that we wouldn't stumble people on our preferences and our traditions, but the only stumble, the only offense would be the good news of Jesus Christ. So, so we're always working. It's, you, can't, you can't do church without traditions. You can't do church without preferences or culture, right? Every church has their culture. Every church has their preferences. There's always some kind of structure. We're always saying, okay, we've gotten together and we've decided we're gonna do it this way, right? But we're constantly trying to peel back the layers as a church and say, what are the things that are a distraction and are unnecessary offense and an unnecessary stumbling block? Let's peel those back so that as much as possible, people are confronted with Jesus. That's what he's gonna come to in 1 Corinthians 14, later on in the book. We're gonna get to that in the new year. She's gonna say, make, make that the stumbling block. Make the offense Jesus. Let's not make ourselves the offense, right? I mean, we're just gonna offend people sometimes. But as much as possible, let's pull ourselves out of the way so that people are wrestling with Jesus and Jesus alone. So good question for you to ask is, as most of you are not paid to work full-time, some of you are chaplains, some of you work for a mission agency, some of you are on staff at the church here, but the vast majority of you don't get paid to preach the gospel. And so a good question to ask you is, how do I have increased credibility with my friends and neighbors to share the good news of Jesus? 
because I'm not paid to tell them about Jesus. When I tell someone about Jesus, they're like, oh, you're a preacher. You're paid to be nice, right? (laughs) But when you tell people about Jesus, there's a different sort of credibility there. And I wanna encourage you to continue to grow in your understanding of the good news of what Jesus has done for you. And then to pray for opportunities to share that good news with your friends and your neighbors and those that you work with. All right, we'll wrap up here. As we think about investing in the gospel, I wanna go back to one of my favorite parables that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, uh, translation, knowing Jesus, being a part of his rule and reign in your life, understanding the good news for you and walking in it. He says, that's like finding the most incredible treasure you've ever seen. Giving up everything else you ever had, selling all your possessions to go and purchase that field where you found that hidden treasure. It's a kind of reckless abandon. You're saying this is more important than than anything else. And Jesus calls all of us to have this relative viewpoint on the rest of our life. That no matter what you do for a living, no matter where you are, no matter what your gifts, no matter what your talents, that you're treasuring Jesus more than anything else. And that treasure is so overwhelming to you that you wanna share that good news with other people. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the good news that you have come after us in love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, thank you that you invested in us by giving us life through Jesus. Help us to invest in that good news by sharing it verbally, by helping others with encouragement, with our time, with our financial resources. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.